Hello everyone and welcome to episode 18 of Intermediate English with me, Benjamin. When I started this podcast, I knew that I would have to make an episode about the British monarchy. It's a subject which fascinates people around the world. But what I didn't realize is that I would have so much to say about it. So I've had to split this discussion into two parts. This episode focuses on the history of the British monarchy up until 1900. And the next episode will look at the monarchy in the 20th and 21st centuries and ask whether it will or should continue into the future. Just one little side point before we start. To simplify things, I'm talking about the English monarchy until 1707. After that, it becomes the British monarchy. Before 1707, Scotland officially had its own separate kingdom, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about that. If you want to find out more about that, there are lots of fascinating aspects of it. Now, on with the episode. The United Kingdom, along with 15 other states around the world, has Queen Elizabeth II as its head of state. There's something unusual about having a monarchy in the 21st century. The monarchy is closely linked to British identity, and it plays a really important role in the perception of Britain around the world how other countries think about the UK. Monarchies might be unusual today, but in fact monarchy is a political system that has historically been very common in Europe. It was the main political system in Europe until the 20th century, and there are still a lot of other kingdoms left in Europe. Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Spain, the Netherlands and Belgium. Where did these monarchies come from? They come from the vacuum left by the Roman Empire, the space left by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire covered much of Europe, Asia and Africa for 400 years. At its peak, at its height, this empire stretched from the north of England all the way down to Egypt, from Spain in the west, to Iraq in the east. Across this enormous territory, tens of millions of people were ruled by one man, the Roman Emperor. But when this empire got weaker and weaker, it began to fall apart. And when it split in 395 AD into the eastern half and the western half, that was the start of the end for the western half of the empire. Less than a hundred years later, in 480 AD, the empire had collapsed and it had been divided up between a number of different tribes from Eastern Europe and Central Asia. 
each of these tribes was led by one man. And eventually, these tribes started to call themselves kingdoms, and the one man that led them became the king. In other words, these tribes that turned themselves into kingdoms created the European royal families and also some of the countries that we know today. Those around the new kings, the closest supporters of them, became the nobility. What happened in Britain is that the fall of the Roman Empire left a vacuum, it left a space which was filled by different kingdoms. These kingdoms were Scandinavian kingdoms, they were from modern-day Denmark and Norway. After a few hundred years, we have an event that I've spoken about in my first podcast, so I don't want to go into it in too much detail now. That was the Norman Conquest in 1066. It's a very important date in Britain. It's a date that most schoolchildren know and could tell you. Um, and it's probably considered to be one of the most important dates in British history. So what was so important about it? Well, it was a change in the royal line. The year 1066 was a year of political crisis, with four different people claiming the English throne. In other words, four different people who tried to become king. This event was really significant because it ended the rule of England by the Scandinavian kingdoms that had ruled it before. It also brought a change in hereditary system. In other words, how the monarchy continues, how kingship is passed from one generation to the next. This change led to the monarchy as we know it today in a couple of ways. Under the Anglo-Saxon kings who ruled England before 1066, there was no single way to become king. When one king died, his oldest son didn't necessarily become the next king. A king could nominate his successor, that's the word we use for the next king, he could nominate his successor, he could name them, or his successor could be chosen by the Anglo-Saxon nobility. But after 1066, after William the Conqueror became king, the royal line passed down through the oldest male child. This is a system that we call primogeniture, and it was common at the time, but not the only system. And since 1066, we've had a system of primogeniture. So it was an important year for that reason. I want to pass over the next few hundred years pretty quickly, not because they were unimportant or uneventful, but just because there are other things I want to focus on. During these hundreds of years, there were 
bitter fights over the crown. Abdications, that means when you give up the crown to someone else. Revolts by the nobility and by the peasants. And a civil war that lasted for 30 years. But perhaps the biggest turning point in the monarchy happened after the end of the medieval period. In the 1530s, the King of England was Henry VIII. In this period, the meaning of kingship was changing. What it meant to be king was changing. For hundreds of years, kings had had the power to wage war, to change laws, to raise taxes, all through negotiating with their nobility. But in this period, they don't just have to negotiate with nobility, but parliament starts to be more important. This means that there are important individuals who are involved in governing, but not necessarily nobility. Now, it doesn't mean that this was a democracy. It doesn't mean that everyone could vote. But Parliament becomes important for agreeing to taxes and giving the king the money he needed for war. There were also a number of ministers who were advising the king, representing him, taking over parts of his job. If you're interested in this, there is a series of books by the British author Hilary Mantel. And these books focus on Thomas Cromwell, who was one of these ministers to Henry VIII. It was also turned into a TV series, and I'd really recommend the books or the series. Now, in this time, the king could make huge changes in people's lives, and I want to give you some examples of what those might be. Henry had been a devout Catholic in his youth, but in the 1520s, the Catholic Church, based in Rome, started to block Henry. It started to stand in the way of what he wanted to do. And in just a few years, he responded to this by creating a new religion called Anglicanism. A religion which was closer to Protestantism, this new form of Christianity, than it was to Catholicism. Henry also closed down all the monasteries and nunneries in England and Wales. These were institutions where monks and nuns would pray, would serve the community, and would worship God. As he shut down these monasteries and nunneries, he sold off their gold and their silver and used that money to advance his interests, to grow the navy, for example. All three monarchs after Henry VIII were three of his children, but they weren't all Anglicans like Henry. They each had their own vision of the country's religion, one strongly Protestant, the other strongly Catholic, and the third somewhere in between. 
over the next few decades, thousands of their subjects were burnt at the stake for religious reasons. They were executed for religious reasons, all because of the religion of the king or queen changing from Catholicism to Protestantism and back again. So the English monarchy had a huge amount of power in this time, the power to create a new religion. Although the monarchy still didn't have as much power as some of its European brothers and sisters, like the French king or the Holy Roman Emperor, they had more power than the English king or queen. The next period which I'd like to talk to you about was a period of huge instability and great change in the monarchy. Religious instability had started under Henry VIII, but it still wasn't resolved a hundred years later in the 1630s. The king, Charles I, was suspected of being a secret Catholic of wanting to make Britain Catholic again. He had a French Catholic wife, and he had made political appointments to people who were suspected of being secret Catholics. Making political appointments means giving them important political jobs. The fact that there was so much instability about the king, and so much fear about his religion, shows that the king didn't have complete power to shape the religion of his country. He had to listen to what his subjects said, to what the people in the country said. He had to respond to them. This wasn't the only reason for the civil war which began in 1642, but it was one very important reason for the war. The king, Charles I, had lost so much authority that half the country was prepared to rise up against him and challenge his right to remain king. This was a really extraordinary moment in British history, that the king was at war with his own people. It shows us that for the king to have power, he needed to have an army. His power in that era relied on violence and on the threat of violence. The king did not win the civil war and this led to a moment in history which showed how much power the king could lose. After losing the war, Charles I was imprisoned and then he was put on trial in a court for treason. Treason is a crime against your king or against your state. And so the idea of the king being tried for treason is a difficult one to understand. 
and it was believed that he had betrayed his people by trying to turn the country into a Catholic country and trying to impose an authoritarian will on his country. He was found to be guilty, and on January the 30th, 1649, Charles I was executed for treason. He was beheaded in front of a huge crowd who had come to watch their king being executed. What followed this moment was a period of 11 years without a king, the only period of republican rule in Britain since the Roman Empire. Republican means when there's no king, and this was the only time when there had been such a long period of republican rule. But the fact that it only lasted for 11 years shows that the interregnum as it's called, this period of republicanism, it was a failure. It didn't find a new way of running the country. During these 11 years, there were many different political systems attempted. But in all of these political systems, there was still one man playing a central role. First, it was Oliver Cromwell, and then, when he died, it was his son, Richard Cromwell. In some ways, this period operated a bit like a monarchy. The two men who led the country during this period, Oliver and then his son, they were treated like royalty. They had a lot of power. At the time, people made cartoons of Oliver Cromwell, dressed up as a king. Why did they do that? Because they thought that he was obsessed with power and he wanted to create his own royal line. So even in this period of republicanism, it was very hard to get away from the idea of kingship. As I said before, this was a period of only 11 years and at the end of those 11 years, the royal line was restored, and the monarchy was brought back. For a lot of people, the monarchy had remained popular during that time, and there were celebrations in London when King Charles II, the son of Charles I, rode into the city in 1660. Since that year, Britain has had a monarchy continuously, now, this is pretty unusual. By comparison, most of continental Europe had its monarchies abolished at some point, or abolished and then perhaps reintroduced. But this period of monarchy since 1660 doesn't mean that it's been an easy ride. It doesn't mean that things have been simple. The king who restored the monarchy in 1660, Charles II, his brother, the next king, James II, was deeply unpopular. 
His father had started a civil war and had been executed because of suspicions of Catholicism. Well, James II was an open Catholic, and this was really disturbing to a lot of the population who feared religious persecution for their Protestant beliefs. James II only lasted three years on the throne before he was deposed by his daughter Mary and his son-in-law, the Dutch prince William of Orange. Being deposed means he was removed from the throne. I just want to add a little side note here, that William was the son-in-law of James II, but he was also his nephew. How is that possible? Well, in other words, Mary was married to her cousin. This was pretty normal back then, and up until fairly recently, royalty married royalty, and all of the European royal families were very, very closely related. So, back to the deposition of James II. Although this event is now called the Glorious Revolution, it was an invasion, there is no question about that. Whether you think that James was a good king or a bad king, there's no doubt that the throne was forcibly taken away from James II. The new monarchs, William and Mary, ruled together as king and queen, and they returned Britain to Anglicanism. This period over the next 60 years defined many aspects of the monarchy as we know it today. Kings stopped leading their soldiers into battle. In fact, the last time that a king led his soldiers into battle in Britain was in 1743, when George II led his troops into battle. Kings and queens stopped being at the centre of politics, and ministers started to do this work instead. The office of the Prime Minister was started in 1721. Finally, these Prime Ministers had to work more and more with Parliament. Laws needed Parliament's approval to be passed, and so the monarch had to do more negotiation, usually via the Prime Minister. And all of this is what we call constitutional monarchy monarchy that is working in collaboration with the constitution, or a monarchy which is checked in some way by the constitution, by the laws of the country. And it's the most common system in the monarchies that still exist in Europe today. This political setup also gave us the two most important political parties in Britain for the next 200 years, the Conservative Party and the Liberal Party. At first, the Conservative Party had very strong links to the monarchy and court. It was, in a way, the King's Party. But this became less important over time, and it started to create its own identity. At the start of the 20th century, monarchy was still strong in Europe, there were only three republics in Europe, 
France, Switzerland, and San Marino. In Britain, the monarchy was in a strong place. In the year 1900, Britain had a popular queen, Victoria, who had been on the throne for 63 years. In many ways, the monarchy seemed to be popular, stable, and successful. If you were living in Britain in 1900, you would probably have no idea that the next century would be such a difficult one for the monarchy. <laughs>